You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Jilly McMillan, who grew up in Swindon, Wiltshire, and also lived in Northern California in her late teens. She studied art history at Bristol University and then at Court Loud Institute of Art in London. She's worked at the Burlington Magazine and the Hayward Gallery before starting a family, and since then has done some lecturing in A-level photography. She lives in Bristol, UK with her husband and three children, and now writes full-time, and I'm so happy that she's here to talk about her very new novel, The Perfect Girl. Welcome. Thank you very much. So I, I just said before we got started that these interviews are hard because I want to talk about the book, but I don't want to give anything away. So I'm going to read a sentence, and then you can, you can add to this, because I'm going to try my best to describe it without giving too much. So the things that you need to know about this is that the main character is Zoe Maisie, who's sort of this prodigy, this child prodigy, a wonderful pianist, who earlier was involved in a very tragic accident, and she caused the death of some teenagers. She served her time. She's come back. And the story in your book begins the night that she's giving a performance that's supposed to launch the sort of comeback of her whole family, the the new beginning of her whole family. Somebody interrupts the performance, and the book takes off from there. And it's it's really tight. It's really condensed. It's it's claustrophobic. It's creepy. It's very very good. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, it, the whole book was originally conceived as something quite claustrophobic, a little bit like a chamber drama, where you might get a small set of characters trapped within a small situation where the action of one triggers reactions in others and the whole thing begins to unfold in that way, getting tenser and tenser. But the setup was very important to me because I wanted Zoe Maisie to be quite an unusual character, somebody who would grab our interest because she's exceptionally talented, but she's had an exceptionally difficult knockback in life already and she's only 17. You know, now as as we're talking... The structure is sort of like a string quartet in a way, right? Where it's where everything is sort of bouncing off of each other. We meet her when she's about to give a piano concert, but it's a dual piano concert, which is fairly rare, right? I, I, you don't often see a dual piano because there's not that much music written to it. So that is that's very interesting that the very first moment is interconnected and then it, it, it spurs from yeah, there. The, the entire book is interconnected. The past story is interconnected inextricably with the, the action that's happening currently. And we learn about both as the book goes on. And funnily enough, I listen to an awful lot of classical music as I wrote it because it's got the peaks and troughs and the intensities and then the slow movements where Uh, you get little breathers and then the moments where the tension ratchets up as we watch this whole thing unfold because at the beginning this concert is the chance for Zoe to move on it's her second chance at life she has a new family she has an opportunity to begin to take the stage again as a musician and everything rests on this one night and everything begins to fall apart that night as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I had read that in an earlier novel, you wrote 
three endings. Was was it the same here? No, it wasn't, which was a huge relief. <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> Writing three endings is a nightmare. I know that's a lot of work. It's <laughs> a lot of work, um, although I was glad we did. Um, but no, I more or less knew the ending of this one before I started. It was very important because it's such a tightly knitted book that if I hadn't known the ending it could have gone quite wrong because the action takes place over a very, very short time. It's just a 24-hour time span for this novel. So it needed to be tight and needed to be well-knitted, and so I needed to know where I was headed quite early. I'm interested in that because I'm interested in, in the fact that it's your second novel, correct? Yes. And I, I had read a little bit about the way you approached your first, which was to give yourself this thousand-word mandate where you really said to yourself, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a thousand mm-hmm. words. And you didn't know the ending, and you wrote these different drafts, and that that the editing process was extended in the sense of yes. you edited quite a bit before you submitted. Yeah. It was edited further from, by your agent, yeah. further by your editor. Mm-hmm. Now you're in your second book, and it sounds like that practice sort of allowed you to be more efficient. Is that is that right? I, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I made... Um, quite a lot of mistakes with my first book because I hadn't done a creative writing course or anything like that, I hadn't been taught. So I ploughed in, did my thousand words a day um, and kind of winged it, really. So the editing process was a massive, massive learning curve for me, huge process of correction, thinking about um, different elements, breaking the book down into different elements so that I could think about them separately, like plot, pace... Um, and all of that kind of narrator. Thing. Originally, you no. wrote it as one narrator. I wrote it became... as, yes, I originally wrote it just in the voice of a mother whose child has gone missing, and it was an absolute emotional download. It was a bit like um, by Grand Central Station. I sat down and wept. It was being in the head of somebody who's just dying inside. Yeah, and I found it too intense. So later on, I added in a detective. Um, so we also see the story and the case unfolding through his point of view, and he's obviously more rational although he does get caught up in things as they go along and am I correct in saying that you found writing that detective one of the harder characters to write I think so because everything I'd previously written had been through the voice of a mother and I'm a mother I found that very straightforward I could pluck those emotions from my own head the detective required a lot of research I met with some retired detectives I played with the voice I played with different ways to present him so he ends up we have his voice, but we also have some transcripts of some interviews that he has with a psychologist. So I, I came at him from lots of different ways. It took me a while to get him right. And how about in in this book, you capture the voice of a of a young teen so well. So how did you manage that? Um, I read many, many books did you? with yeah. teenage narrators, uh-huh. um, just over all genres and time spans. I, I couldn't get enough of them. And I'm a mother of two teenagers, so... That um, helps. It really helps, yeah. So I could check in with them and say, is this realistic, is this not? And uh, also listen to them and their friends and the way they interact. So that's interesting. So as part of your research, you you immerse yourself in, in young adult literature to just get yeah, part of yeah, that. Yeah, not exclusively young adult. Right. I mean, I was reading things like Catcher in the Rye course, and yeah. um, all kinds of things. So, okay. I would, yeah, anything... Um, the Fault in Our Stars was a, a young yeah. adult one that I, yeah, yeah. that I love. So anything with a strong, quirky voice... Well, not not too quirky, but strong, intelligent teenage voice is what I wanted. So I'm curious how authors choose the genre in a situation like yourself, without you know, without quote unquote formal training, mm-hmm. 
and an active family and this this moment where you decided I'm going to close the door, I'm going to write a thousand words. How did you arrive at this type of book, at this sort of psychological thriller approach? What, why, why was that appealing to you? Partly a process of elimination. I had tried to write a historical novel okay. uh, and got bogged down in research, um, which I really enjoyed, but I realized it was too slow. But mostly, absolutely most of all, I just love reading psychological thrillers. Okay. I love a page turner. So it felt as if it would make sense for me to try one of those. And tell me about your title, because the title is The Perfect Girl. Mm-hmm. It's Perfect Girl in the U.S. and in the U.K. Yes, it is. But it was previously called The Butterfly in the Dark. Yes. And I even saw a cover. Yes, there was a cover. There was a cover. Briefly yeah. in the U.K., yes. Uh, it's an image from the book. Yeah. And the butterfly represents beauty and fragility. Yeah. Um, which I think fits my character, Zoe Maisie, and possibly her mother Both as well, yeah. very, very well. And you're now writing full-time. Yes, I am, yes. And has that simple fact influenced the way that you approach your work on a daily basis? Yeah, very much right? so, yeah. Do you find that having that larger expanse of time beneficial or not beneficial because there's something to be said for like the thousand words before you can even do anything else right I still do that oh, you do I still stick to it um but I find it harder because I have to be a bit more careful about what I write now because when I first did that I was like just do a thousand words whatever you do is fine you've done something but now I'm a bit more self-critical a bit more careful a bit think, more aware yeah. of the editing process so I find that thousand words slower but hopefully it's better quality in first draft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because you don't want to then... I can't afford to spend two years putting it right. Putting it together. Like I did with What She Knew. And what are you working on now? I'm working on a sequel to What She Knew. Oh, good. Which is really exciting. And it's an absolute joy to write the detective character again. It's like meeting an old friend, actually. And he's involved in a new case, which is um, also tricky and stressful for him but uh, exciting, and I'm finding it an enormous challenge, but enormous fun to write. It's lovely to return to that detective story. And you're at the point now where you're trying to write your new book while you're setting up publication of this book. Yes. And and there's a tension there. I mean, you've been in our office all day today, and we've been running you around to different places, and the, you know, there's stuff that you're required to do. So how how do you manage that? Uh, I, it's a huge learning curve for, for a debut yeah. author like me. It's a massive learning curve, and I'm still on that learning curve. And I think I just have had to learn to really manage my time better and learn lots of new skills, Yeah, which is nice. Who Who is your first reader? When you have pages ready, who do you hand them to? I have a writing partner. Okay. Um, she is also an author, and we... We've been working together from the very beginning. We were both housewives who were slightly embarrassed about trying to write books. And we would get together every fortnight and swap pages. And now we're both published authors. Fantastic. So we still do that, not quite as often because we're under more time pressure now, both of us. Um, so nowadays, often my husband is my first reader yeah. and he used to be my second reader. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I, I always ask that question. It's, always an, it's normally a spouse and followed by mother a lot, oh, of people's, a lot of people send their pages to their mother. My mother's an English teacher, so I'm very, yeah. I edit first. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you're still active in that sort of sense of community. I understand that, you know, as you've grown up, you've been accepted into um, the community of suspense and thriller writers. Tell us a little bit about that, that experience. That's a really extraordinary 
thing. It's a really lovely thing. It's not something you think about when you're slaving away in your yeah, debut yeah. novel. Um, and I'm I've come to this later in my life. Um, I have quite you know quite grown up children so it's been a complete joy to find that not only is your book out there which is the dream when you start to write it but there's an, a whole kind of set of people out there who are doing what you do and are happy to welcome you in to that community it's wonderful what's the last book you had a conversation about and what did you say I had a conversation about Ryan Gattis's All Involved oh okay which I think oh, is an incredibly powerful Brutal, beautiful, important, important, important book. book. Yes, it's a phenomenal book. The the first person narratives, the way it's knitted together, the story, the insight. So, just for those listening, it all involved is um, a fictional account of the L.A. riots in the aftermath of the uh, Rodney King verdict, and it's set over six days with different narrators uh, over either six yeah yeah, there's a ton of narrators and and I encourage anyone we have a beautiful audiobook recording of that with with a multi-voice cast we did an extended interview with him and then we excerpted we excerpted the books and he set it up and he talked about the backstory of the characters it's it's a great book it's a phenomenal book yeah absolutely phenomenal yeah it it was optioned by hbo which you could totally see it as a series which reminds me to ask you have your have your books been optioned for film no they haven't yeah but they they will yeah well it'll happen because they're they're that kind of they're that kind of book that kind of story I'm glad to hear that you read All Involved. It's a good book. I read it. I loved it. It's the book I think about most that I've read in the last year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's, that's so wonderful. I think it's so good. All those narrators and every one of them, pitch perfect. Yeah. All right, my final question. It's somewhat corny. I ask it anyway. Were you to be banished to a desert island and you could take three books, which three would you take? Oh, that's so hard. Oh, too bad. You have to answer. Um, I would take... I probably would take Catcher in the Rye. Because I love that book. I love the voice and the energy. Um, I'm going to leave this this and think of a ton of no, other books. I, 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 put, you, I put everyone on the spot. Yeah. It's very interesting to see how one answers when they have not had this question in advance. Yeah. Uh, I probably would take uh, Paradise Lost by oh. John Milton because of the language, which I love and adore. And then it would have to be a novel... What would I take? You can leave it at two. I'm going to leave it at two right now. Otherwise, I'll have to give you 20. (laughs) It's really, it's a very, very hard question. All right, well, thank you, Jillie McMillan, and thank you so much for The Perfect Girl. It's a pleasure. Thank you for interviewing me. And those listening, I highly recommend it, and it's available in ebook, audiobook, and print. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts. All brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.